The word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44, and reading verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Are you my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And thanks be to God for his word. Amen. Our text of this morning begins to pick up what is a very important theme in the book of Isaiah, and that is that we are uh, the witnesses of God. See this in verse 8. Uh, reminder uh, that we are uh, to render witness with respect uh, to our great God, and that is essentially brought forward in this text and developing sense of importance uh, about the nature of our witness. Uh, but along with the nature of our witness, it's most important that our content uh, be correct. Uh, if we are the witness of God, but our content is incorrect, then, uh, then we are not uh, good witnesses. So we have something here of the content of witness that includes uh, the identity of God as well as his incomparability. Uh, the prophet stresses in verse 6 the identity of God, uh, something that our culture is, uh, is losing, uh, as well as in verses 7 to 8, uh, the incomparability of God, uh, something, again, that we are uh, well-nigh defecting from. Uh, well, our text uh, uh, is connected to a much larger theme, that is a polemic uh, against idolatry. Uh, and it constitutes a summary statement before another very mocking uh, tirade in the verses to follow against what it means to be an idolater. probably not uh, something that we should uh, use as a way to witness to others, namely mocking their faith. Uh, we should leave that to the prophet Isaiah, but again, he will indeed uh, launch into a bitter satire against uh, what an idolater is. Uh, our, our witness should perhaps engage compassion uh, that they are enveloped and embraced by darkness, and perhaps that should be an approach uh, to uh, idolaters. But uh, God begins in verse 6 to identify himself with four declarative, very decisive declarative statements. Uh, the first, he is, uh, he is the king of Israel, but he's also our king. Uh, difficult for, I think, Americans to embrace what that means because 
long time ago, we rejected a monarchy. Uh, but nonetheless, we live in a monarchy, the greatest monarchy that's ever been, a monarch that, of course, uh, lives and reigns and rules forever and ever. And we have a king. He is our king. Uh, more importantly, we have a personal relationship with our king. Uh, I would confess to you, I know no one of power. I wish I could tell you that I, I knew President Trump or, or Obama or Nixon or Ford or name any president because maybe I could... Uh, get them to do me some favors. Well, I don't know any of those men. I, I barely know the mayor of the city I live in, but I do know someone that is of manifest importance, and that is the king of the universe, and that is the great God of heaven. Uh, and I also know from scripture that he, he has great love and affection for his people. So sometime in the byways of life, if you feel less than privileged, let the scriptures correct you. You are the beloved of God. He is your king. Uh, but let us also remember that as king, his rule is absolutely supreme and that there's no king beside him. He is not even the first among equals. He is the only king. Uh, again, we must as Americans recover that we do live in a monarchy, at least as Christians we do. Uh, and it's good that we do. Earthly kings come and go, but God is supreme and there is no one above him, or there's not even anyone beside him. He's the only king. I think we could add the appellation that uh, he is a king of universal, eternal supremacy. Uh, he owns uh, everything. There's nothing outside of his, uh, his monarchy. Uh, it's good to look at the monarchies of the world, but generally they have geographic boundaries. There are no boundaries to the monarchy of, of God. Uh, wherever you go, he owns. Every blade of grass belongs to him uh, because he is the eternal, uh, universal king who rules over everyone and everything. And as king, his, his will and his rule is irresistible. Uh, good reminder of verse that we have looked at on occasion found in the latter part of the book of Job, Job chapter 42, uh, and uh, the second verse. We kind of fight against this theologically in our churches today, but uh, I think it's because we don't understand the biblical monarchy, uh, but we should. And Isaiah, pardon me, Job 42 and verse 2, I know that thou canst do all things. Speaking of, of God, Job is speaking. You can do all things. Nothing can hinder you. If there was something that could hinder God, he wouldn't be God. In a moment, he would be displaced, but he cannot be hindered uh, because his will is supreme. Uh, his monarchy is total and absolute. Notice what else Job says, that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Uh, in all of history, in all of civilization, that statement can only be said of the God of Scripture. So it's good to remember the nature of the monarchy in which we live. Uh, it's good as Christians to understand that we are sons of the king because uh, we are sometimes tempted to chafe against the monarchy of God. But when we are checked by the reality that we are his sons, uh, we know that he loves us, and whatever comes our way comes from his good hands. And he will make it good because he is the eternal king. Uh, it's another verse that's something of an analog to this in Daniel chapter uh, 2 and verse 47, 
the days of Daniel, the most powerful man on the face of the earth was, uh, uh, was, was Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but he learned about Daniel's king uh, in the ministry of Daniel in the court of, uh, of the king, earthly king, that is. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to learn that Daniel's God, Daniel's king, is the Lord of kings and the God of gods. Probably not the most precise theological statement. But at least Nebuchadnezzar understood that there was no one above God. I would really go beyond that and say he's the only God. Uh, so Lord of kings, but he's the only true uh, universal king. Uh, he has no beginning or ending, no successor. Who could succeed an eternal uh, king as the greatness of our God as is testified in Scripture? Uh, well, beyond king, secondly, Isaiah says he is, he's, your, he's your redeemer. He's our redeemer. It's an allusion to uh, Old Testament institution of a kinsman redeemer. Uh, for example, maybe you fall on hard economic times, and so uh, for a price you sell yourself into slavery. Uh, you had a kinsman redeemer. He would come and rescue you, uh, pay what you couldn't pay uh, to get you out of the servitude of labor. Uh, our God is kinsman redeemer because of Jesus Christ who uh, redeemed us uh, from the distress of our sin, our failings, uh, all perfectly uh, so that we are a forgiven people forever. That God ransoms us with the purchase price of our son. The ultimate uh, reality of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament falls upon Jesus Christ ends with him, really, uh, because he's the only one uh, who, who can redeem uh, his people. Uh, application of this by the Apostle Paul in uh, his first Corinthian epistle, he says in chapter 6, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God. He set you free. Set you free. One of the greatest possessions of all of life is freedom. reading a biography on uh, what in my mind is perhaps the greatest Civil War general. Uh, you can tell me about your disagreement, but again, it's about Ulysses Grant. Uh, a time in which people wanted to be free. Because of Jesus Christ, you and I are free. Incredible, our freedom. Paul in his epistle to the Galatian church says, don't, don't, don't let, let someone take you back into the bondage of slavery with bad theology. You're free because of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, uh, you've been bought with a price, therefore don't serve men. We, we serve God. It's a higher calling uh, to serve God, uh, the one true king. Uh, in, in a very real sense, uh, our every allegiance uh, goes to him. It's not that we don't owe allegiance to the United States, uh, perhaps as taxpayers or uh, citizens of a uh, local governmental institution. We have to render some due. But uh, spiritually speaking, our total and every allegiance 
with no exception, goes to the one true king. Because we've been bought with a price. Because of the work of our kinsman and redeemer. Thirdly, Isaiah says, uh, the description of God, the identity that forms the content of our witness, that he's the Lord of hosts. It's a military term. Hosts are armies. Uh, it's a term, if you will, of rank. Uh, in other words, God is at the pinnacle of every chain of command. Uh, every uh, every uh, military unit that I ever belonged to, uh, when you walked in the door, somewhere in the hallway was a uh, picture of the chain of command. First picture in line was the President of the United States of America. And then it went on from there. You, you understood that you were, you were to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. And then eventually there'd be, you know, your immediate boss, the chain of command. Uh, well, the ultimate in the chain of command is the Lord of hosts. He commands every army that has ever marched, every air wing that has ever flown, every fleet that's ever sailed, every parliament, every congress. And by the way, he is the king of every dictator that's ever ruled in whatever country there is. You and, you and I serve the Lord of hosts and that we should in our minds have hung in our minds an understanding of who he is as the Lord of hosts. But the greatest and most majestic of all kings, the captain of every, every force. Uh, nothing is outside of his command authority. To give you a brief illustration of my own uh, military career, uh, you always, uh, particularly as you wrote uh, order of, of battles, uh, paid very close attention to the chain of command. But even in a peacetime army, you were sensitive to that because even though you might be a general, uh, you didn't have command authority over another general's soldiers. They didn't belong to you. Well, I'm just simply telling you that <laughs> everyone and everything belongs to God. He owns it all and commands it all uh, by divine fiat, and his purposes cannot be thwarted. In my own mind, I know a lot of people in the American church chafe against that theology, but to me, it's very comforting. Uh, because in all of the vagaries of life, you can understand that God is king, and you're his son. And whatever wind blows your way, favorable or ill, come from him, and he turns everything for the good of his people. Uh, there's something of this in the theology of the Apostle Paul in uh, his letter to the church at Colossia, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, in Christ, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So that in your chain of command is the Lord Jesus Christ, the majestic Son of God. 
something of this uh, reminder is uh, uh, in terms of the Lord of hosts, uh, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 14. Uh, Christ is uh, coming again. And the army of heaven comes with him, uh, following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he will smite the nations. He will destroy all of the enemies of the church and the armies of heaven with him, and they cannot stop him or prevent him. Uh, they cannot get in his way. They will be all whisked aside and uh, all, all destroyed, all brought to naught. Uh, we read in, in Revelation chapter 6 of the coming of Christ that the, uh, the kings of the earth and the slave men and the free men will all try to hide from him. They will call upon the mountains and the rocks to cover them that they might hide from the wrath of the Lamb, but they cannot hide. I love the end of Revelation chapter 6. Who can stand? If you, who can stand against Christ? No one. You know why? Because he's the Lord of hosts, the great eternal king of heaven and earth. No one can stand. Uh, in terms of the church, because we are his sons, we will stand, uh, shall we say, behind him, but certainly with him and for him and through him, uh, because he is our king. He is our Lord, uh, the great king of heaven. Next, uh, again, it should be something of the content of our witness, uh, the identity of God as he identifies himself to Israel uh, because soon they're going to be in captivity and they're going to get all depressed. And uh, what you need when you're depressed is to be comforted, and that's what the word of God is, a comfort in light of who God is. That's one of the reasons I hold to the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God. I don't find comfort in any other system. Uh, the fact that God saves me as the great God of heaven by his grace, that's comforting. And so again, the identity of God that forms a measure of our witness as God identifies himself. Well, the last, uh, next phrase of his description is, I am the first and the last. As you know, uh, that's a figure of speech that technically is called a merism in which two extremes are deposited, but it really means everything in between the two extremes. Uh, the first extreme is first. Well, there's nothing before the first because, because it's the first. God is the first, and he is the last, and everything in between. It attests to the sovereignty of God that he rules over everything. Uh, our Lord uses this designation thereby identifying himself with God in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 13. He says there, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, meaning that he's every letter in between. I'm the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In other words, to put it succinctly, he is everything. The sum and the substance of all perfection. It's a great way to recover our own witness in the world today. Uh, God is not first among equals. 
He is the only. Theology really is overwhelming. It means that God is the sole, eternal, and independent being of the entire creation, and as such, he self-exists, and he is self-sufficient. It's important for us to realize what God is saying about himself. He's, he's king. Uh, you know, God doesn't stand for elections. Can you imagine that? Every, every two years, we have uh, national elections in the United States, and, and uh, then every four years, we have another election. God doesn't stand for elections. He doesn't need to. He's king. <laughs> He's the only king. He's the perfect king. He doesn't even, imagine this, he doesn't even need our votes because of who he is. That's why we need to recover something of the reality of the nature of God's description of himself as the one only true king, the first and the last, the Lord of hosts. He owes his existence to no one. He doesn't even need our prayers to accomplish his will. We're commanded to pray as the means to accomplish the will of God, but it doesn't stop anything that he does in light of who he is. Uh, the one great, true, and eternal king. Uh, conversely, everything is dependent upon him, and nothing exists apart from him. Uh, I love the very short statement of Westminster Shorter Catechism, defining the providence of God. Uh, the providence of God is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That encompasses everyone and everything. He governs all his creatures and all their actions. Again, it's to frame our witness about who God is. There's another way to perhaps summarize what Isaiah is saying, and that is that God is qualified as the divine king of the nation. It goes without saying, but you must remember that the people in Babylonian captivity are going to get depressed. Oh, woe is me. Why am I here? Why am I a slave? Why am I no longer able to see the temple? Uh, oh, woe is me, God is forgotten. Well, Isaiah is recovering their theology because all that's nonsense. God forgets nothing. If he could forget anything, he wouldn't be God. Uh, to remind them that in his own time, in his own way, uh, he will set them free from their captivity because they have fallen prey to idolatry. So he's qualified. He's also able if what Isaiah has said about God is true, and it emphatically is, is the very word of God, then when God is finished with Nebuchadnezzar and his successors, he'll, he'll set the people free and raise up a man who will do that. The prophet will continue in that line of thought to, to remind us. We might really recover the vitality of these words if we we're Christians in North Korea. Say in a concentration camp. Uh, say being persecuted by the state. Or we lived in Africa and Boko Haram was roaming the streets seeking someone to devour. These texts would charge us with courage and vitality. And so... 
encourage the church. But if God is qualified and able, then he's the sole savior. There's no one else. The conclusion of all of this is the divine self-evident statement in verse 6 that closes out that verse. Again, look with me if you would at your Old Testament. There is no God besides me. Now in America, what we would say is, well, how can God say such a thing? I mean, there's lots of religions. Who does God think he is that he's the only God? Well, you've got to deal with that, my friend. So those are very words of God. He is the there's no God beside him that means everyone else and everything else is totally, radically, emphatically excluded. In fact, they don't even belong in his league. That's what Isaiah is saying. In one fell swoop, he disqualifies every other claim of divinity. He excludes all in emphatic totality. He ransacks the entire pantheon of the history of gods so that he alone is on the shelf, if I can use a metaphor. The singularity is universal of time and space. There is but one, and all others are rejected. Now, that's important for the children of Israel because they're going to go into Babylon captivity because of idolatry. They played around following other gods. God here is telling them why they're in captivity. There is but one and only God. All else are excluded. It's very difficult witness, by the way. You try to witness to people who hold to other religions. But that's part of our witness. The very word of God. Something of the majesty of this in Revelation uh, chapter 3, the 14th verse. Uh, written to a church that's in deep trouble spiritually. Again, say that again written to a church that's in deep trouble spiritually. Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church Laodicea write the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus Christ is speaking to the church because they've departed, departing from the faith. He's the faithful and true witness, meaning every other witness is false. good reminder in terms of our own understanding of theology that our witness is to attest to the absolute uniqueness of God. Uh, he's not one among many. He's not first among equals. He is the only God. There is no God besides me, says the Lord God, King of Israel, the Redeemer, uh, the Lord of hosts, well, our witness uh, in light of this in verses 7 to 8 is to attest to the incomparability of God. Incomparability. In other words, there is no comparison. Uh, we, <clears throat> we come to this from a string of three interrogatives. Uh, God, God says... Uh, who, who is like me? Of course, again, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Uh, 
All of the prophets were emphatic in this. Uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 50, in the latter part of the 44th verse, the incomparability of God. Who is like me? and Who will summon me into court? And who then is the shepherd who can stand before me? I think one of the problems in the American experience is sometimes the judiciary uh, sees itself as establishing laws, but God says, who's going to call me into court? Who's going to sue me? Answer is nobody. He's the supreme judge. By the way, I say that by way of reminder, every justice upon the Supreme Court and every lower court from the Supreme Court rules in civil government under God. And they will give an account for every decision that they ever made, ever spoke, ever wrote. It's a chilling thought. But that is the nature of the faith. God appoints civil rulers, and we should honor them, to be sure. Uh, But they will give an account before God. And it's a reminder that if they ever seek to turn our allegiance away from the one true God, then we are bound to resist them because our allegiance to God supplants our allegiance to any man or institution because of who God is, incomparable. God is very politely saying, if you want to play this game, if there's any rival out there, let him come forward. And we'll chat. Uh, The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, has let him stand before me, uh, speak his words. It's a summons to come forward and proclaim and declare that God is false and a liar. Uh, uh, The the, the phrase in uh, the New American Standard uh, let him recount it to me in order. Uh, In other words, you go off and you do your research and uh, you, you study your books and you study uh, all the judicial history and uh, every court decision that's ever been written and then you come and set forth an argument before me and we'll see who wins the argument. Of course, we know who's going to win. There's no authority higher than God. The point is for one to state the case for comparison against God. The particular reference here is to the ability to proclaim and affect the future. Only God can do that, and God does in the scriptures. That's why we uh, study the scriptures. The time of the establishment of the nation, declare what's going to happen to them. Only God does that. Uh, One of the reasons uh, I hate to shop is uh, shopping is an act of comparing, isn't it? Uh, Which tomato soup is better? Well, I don't know. I just pick one, and generally it's the wrong one. That's what happens in my house. Why didn't you get the other one, Bowersox? It 
Because I can't compare very well. Well, when you know the Lord God of history, you can't compare. You don't have to compare because the comparison stops with him. There's none greater, none better, none who is deserving of our affection, honor, and glory because there is no comparison. So I don't have to shop. Just simply read the scripture. There's no one like me. There's no argument to which God must give an account to. That's the kind of God I'd like to serve. We do serve the king of heaven and earth. It's not that he's one among many, but he's the only. The shelf is clean. I go to the shopping center. There must be 20 kinds of tomato soup. I, I just don't get that. When we go to study the faith, there is but one only. It makes it real simple. Know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and all searching ends because you know him who is all perfection and glory. Something of a story of this, let's engage in historical comparison. Uh, the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 7. Uh, Moses is an unlikely herald of God, but that's, that's who God chooses, unlikely people like you and me. We're sinners. He chooses us to be his witnesses. He chooses Moses to go into the court of Pharaoh. In the days of Moses, he was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Uh, and uh, Pharaoh wants to see uh, the credentials of Moses, and so Aaron uh, throws down uh, the staff, and you know the story becomes a serpent. What was dead comes to life. So polemic, by the way, against Pharaoh. You know what was on the headdress of Pharaoh? A cobra. Symbolizing the protection of a pagan goddess. By the way, an inanimate cobra. Aaron throws down that which is inanimate becomes a snake, a living being. Well, you know the story. Evil court has its counterfeits. Uh, by the way, Throughout history, there's always counterfeits to the Lord God of heaven and earth. But you and I know the only one, as attested to us by Isaiah the prophet. And they have counterclaims that imitate the divine, so the magicians seemingly perform uh, the same miracle. And again, I speak to those of you, particularly young or maybe wondering about Christianity, there's always counterfeits. Uh, and so go to the scriptures. Uh, there you'll learn how to how to test and reject all the counterfeits. Uh, but God intervenes in a miracle, doesn't he? Exodus chapter 7, verse 12. But Aaron's staff, you know the rest of the verse? Swallowed up their staffs, the counterfeit. Swallows them whole. Meaning what? In a moment we know, in the great contest between Moses and Pharaoh, and God in the pantheon of the false gods of Egypt, God is going to win. We wouldn't have to go any further than that. Our God wins. Nothing can stop him. It's a reminder of all of us of, of the greatest of all enemies that we face, that of death. Proverbs chapter 1, death is like a gaping snake that will swallow us. How tragic is that? It is very tragic. But then we read 1 Corinthians. Death will be swallowed by victory. 
because of who God is. I don't know, maybe you're struggling with some health problem in your life. I can only tell you the bad news, barring the coming of Jesus Christ, some health problem is going to eventually claim you. But not for long. Because God will make it so that the victory that he has accomplished at the cross will swallow that which once swallowed you. The hope of the scriptures. The second interrogative is have I announced and declared to you, again, reference to prophecy of coming out of Babylon and the last exodus. God predicts the future and he delivers. Every religion predicts the future. Every religion promises the issue is they can't deliver and they don't deliver. I remember walking a city in Europe and here was, I, I told a measure of this story, Hare Krishna marching down the road and all the policemen were following him. And then there was one guy who was the dragnet. He catches me. Hey, buddy, you need some divine energy? No, I need atonement. You got any of that? Only Christianity delivers. Everyone else promises. I don't know what divine energy is. What is that, a, some drink? We have atonement, eternal atonement. It's never ending, perfect, one time for all time. There's no God besides me. That's how the text closes in verse 8. There is no God besides me. Begins and ends the text. Each question rhetorical. The voice, therefore, of the church is one. God is incomparable. There's no other God. All are false. All are rejected. The same exclusivity is captured in the statement, there is no rock besides him. And God speaks, there's, there's no rock besides me. The reference rock is to a cluster of boulders or a rock formation. Reminds me of something that's impregnable. Maybe you've gone to Colorado Springs. They, they have this rock formation there. You know what they call it? The Garden of the Gods. How silly is that? You can't find any safety in the Garden of the Gods. You can find only safety in the God who is the one true eternal rock. God is a rock stronghold that cannot be breached. And therefore, God is protection and security. Uh, I'm one as a fallen creature who has the eternal quest for security. It's eternal because I never can find it except in God who is the rock. There's no other security besides him. Psalm uh, chapter 62, or Psalm 62, uh, reading verses 6 to 8. If you're like me and you have a quest for security, something that can hold you, then hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 62, and verses 68. He is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation, my glory rests, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. There is no other rock. Every other confessional statement by every other religion that promises security will all fail because there's only one rock. In the time of testing, they will all unravel and what you must know is that they offer no protection against God. Isn't that the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft from Me? The hymn that's caught in a violent storm in the Lake District of England hides in an outcropping of rocks her safety, only to understand spiritually that 
God is the only rock cleft for me. Or maybe the great hymn of the Protestant Reformation. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. There's no other religion that can sing that hymn save the Christian faith. A mighty fortress. No other fortress can stand against him. His fortress is impregnable. You want security? Flee to Jesus. There's no hope outside of him. There's only hope in him. I simply remind you that if you know Christ, he is your rock of ages. The myriad of claims that there are many roads to heaven are all a lie. Uh, there's no other God besides God. Uh, it's not that there are a lot of gods, just different names. Our God is called Jesus Christ and the Father and Spirit. And another religion has, I don't know, Muhammad. No, there's only one name, our Trinitarian God, all else are false. There's no comparison. There's no one even in the league of who God is. He has no, no competitors because of who he is. Uh, that is, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the content uh, in a measure of our witness proclaimed to the world in which we live as the witnesses of God. Framed by God's identification of himself and the emphatic proclamation that there's only one God and he is that God. There is but one only, the living and true God. As a church, in a wavering world, let us be faithful to that witness, and may God bless that witness, that God might advance more and more in our hearts and in the world in which we live. And may God bless us in that witness to be sure of.